0: All right, so I'm going to read the passage for today. Um, it's on page 620 in these Bibles, if you have one. Um, it's 1 Corinthians 6:12 through 20. It says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not only know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from Christ? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I'm going to pray again. Lord Jesus, um, I thank you so much for this time that we can come together and hear um, from your word, Lord. Um, I pray that you just reveal yourself to each one of us in a new way this morning, Lord, um, and that we would leave just a little different than the way that we came in. We love you a lot. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Thanks, guys. Good morning. Happy New Year to you all. Glad you joined us this morning. Uh, you came into a makeover, apparently. The floors are different. So, And I was like trying to remember. I'm like, I don't remember what they used to look like. I just know they look different and better. So anyways. Uh, welcome. We didn't do that for you, but nonetheless, we're glad you're here. And uh, this morning, guys, um, uh, Happy New Year. Um, I hope that your break was restful. Um, I hope that it was life-giving. Uh, we're back together again today. School is starting, and that's exciting. And um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 6. If you're not there yet, please uh, open a Bible to 1 Corinthians 6. Um, with, a, with a new year uh, comes resolutions. Uh, You know, every year we do this, Uh, researchers say that about 60% of us make resolutions and only about 8% of us keep them. Uh, I'm definitely among the 60 and among the eight, you know, not the eight, I'm not among the eight, I guess I'll say that. Um, But I read this week even the results of a survey that was done on about 2,000 people and the survey asked people what they were resolving to want to change in their lives in 2019. And they compiled the data and uh, came up with a list of top 10 things that people are resolving for this year. And so uh, number one on that list, 71% of these 2,000 people said they're resolving to either diet or eat healthier. And number two was uh, 65% of these people said they wanted to exercise more. Uh, Number three, 54% of the people said that they want to lose weight. I'm noticing a trend. Uh, Number four, uh, people said I wanna save money, spend less, learn a new skill or hobby, quit smoking, read more, find another job, drink less alcohol, spend more time with family and friends. Now, I think it's interesting to me that five of these 10 resolutions that the vast majority of people are apparently making, they all relate to the use, the image, and the health of our bodies. Uh, We're kind of obsessed with our bodies, aren't we? We're a little obsessed. I'm not saying it's necessarily bad. Um, it's good to want to be healthy. Uh, but we're, we're really, we think a lot about our bodies. And uh, what's interesting to me, though, is, number one, our obsession with our bodies. Uh, and also just how much messaging there is out there of people telling you what to do with your body. But then all at the same time, we have this philosophy here in the West that says, uh, no one tells me what I should do with my body. It's mine, and I'll do with it what I want. So just think about this, okay? Uh, People are constantly telling you what to do with your body, right? From what you should look like, from what size you should be, or even how much soda you should drink. I don't know if you remember back in 2013, 14, the infamous soda ban in New York City that didn't ultimately, uh, you know, didn't keep, right? They said this is not legal. They wanted to limit the drinking sizes of soda to 16 ounces or less. Remember this? People are even telling you what you can drink and not drink. Right? People are telling you what to do with your body, and they're telling you especially what to do and believe about the use of your body sexually. Okay, so there, people will say, sleep with whoever you want, as long as you're happy, as long as you're in love, as long as it's mutually consented between the two of you, right? Uh, we're told even to experiment these days. We're told to explore. We're even told that it's foolish to marry someone if you've never slept with them, because how do you know? if they're any good in bed? Like how do you know if there's any sexual chemistry between the two of you? Uh, We even see that uh, pornography use is higher and even more accessible than ever. And out of one side of people's mouths, people might say, yeah, there's probably a problem with pornography and people are trying to figure out how to limit that a little bit. But then out of the other side of that same person's mouth, you'll hear them maybe joke about pornography, make light of it, or even say that it's fine. So you're constantly being told what to do with your body and simultaneously you're told, don't let anybody tell you what to do with your body. So which is it? And does it even matter what you do with your body? Well, 1 Corinthians actually addresses the human body a lot. I joked with Mackenzie this morning. She's like, what are we speaking about? I was like, we're talking about our bodies. It's kind of weird. But uh, we talk, it talks about the body a lot. And our text this morning is the first passage in 1 Corinthians amongst many that actually follow where Paul explicitly addresses how we are to view and understand And use our bodies. And in our passage this morning, we discover then that most of us, if not all of us, uh, severely underestimate how how unimportant our bodies are to God. Uh, So we see just a few things. If you have your paper notes, uh, uh, Jackie typed that on the back for you. Uh, We see three things I want to see in this passage. We see in verses 12 through 14, number one, that we need to understand what our body is. What it is. Uh, Number two, uh, we see in verses 15 through 17 that we shouldn't misunderstand what sex actually is. And most of us do. And number three, we see in verses 18 through 20, positively, we see what we should do with our body. What we should do with our bodies. So the first thing we see is we need to understand what our body even is. Look with me in verse 12. It says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So if you're reading in a Bible, you have these quotation marks, in your Bible, around these phrases. The phrase, all things are helpful for me. There's quotation marks around that. And then there's another quotation mark around the phrase, food is meant for the stomach, and stomach is meant for the food, or stomach is meant for food. So the reason that these phrases are in you know quotes is because these were cultural sayings in Greek society. So people would say these things all the time. They wouldn't really think about what they were saying. They just said them, they just believed them. These were mantras that people would quote to each other that you could basically say. We have mantras too, mantras like, you only live once, right? And we're all like, yeah, you only live once, you know, or, you know, we say things like, you know, you speak your truth, or we say things even like, if you love me, you will approve of me, right? These are mantras. My personal mantra is just trying to keep it 100, you know? I'm still using that, right? That's <laughs> what I'm about, okay? Um, you know, we all have our mantras, okay? Paul may have said these things at one point. He might have even used them in his teaching, okay? Who knows, But what he's doing here is he's using these sayings that are well embraced in Greek society that have now become embraced in this community of Jesus here in Corinth and they've applied them to basically mean that now they are quote unquote free in Christ and everything is on the table, right? They can eat as much as they want, they can drink as much as they want, they can live however they want, they can even sleep with whoever they want because they're forgiven, they're saved by grace, right? That's what they've begun to believe. But beyond that, the body just isn't that important to them. They thought you could do whatever you want with it. What matters in life is really the spirit. The body doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect the spirit, right? You can think of it this way: okay, I love, I love nuts. Okay, I love almonds, cashews especially, peanuts. Right? All those, all nuts—they have a shell, correct? Right? I also, I love peaches. Okay, I love peaches. All right. Let's just say I drop some nuts into some filth. Maybe it was like some trash, some mud even. If I was really hungry, I could still take those nuts out of that filth and I could still eat them. Why? Because there's a shell on them, right? I just just disregard the shell. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect the nut. Now, if I drop a beautiful, glorious peach in that same filth, right, now I have something I have to deal with. I'm like, am I going to eat this or not? Because even if I wash it, it's kind of gross, isn't it? Okay, I know this is a stupid example, nonetheless. I'm just trying to prove to you that the way these people viewed their bodies and the way that most of us view our bodies is like a nut, right? It's just a shell. It doesn't really matter. I'm just going to rip it off and throw it away and get to the good stuff, the spirit within me. That's the important thing, and that's how they're viewing their bodies. See, Paul pulls these embraced sayings out here, and he gives a response to each. He says, all things are lawful for me, his response, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated, I will not be controlled by, I will not be enslaved to anything, right? That's his mantra. He says another mantra, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other is his response, food and the stomach, what's his point? It's not that those things aren't important, it's just that they're not that big of a deal, they're not like eternal things. The next phrase is most likely "believe," which is a response to his food for the stomach uh, phrase. The next phrase is most likely believed in the first few words to be saying the same thing. The body is meant for sex and sex for the body is what people would have said. But Paul says, no, the body is not meant for sexual morality. It's for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. And God raised the Lord. He raised Jesus from the dead. And so he will also raise us by his power. Do you guys see what's going on in this culture? Do you see what Paul's trying to show them? and show you this morning, that they have come to a place in their beliefs, not simply as a culture, but as, as followers of Jesus. They've come to the place in their culture where they would say, it doesn't matter how I use my body. They believe that God simply saved their spirit, that they're merely spiritual beings, that's who they really were, and so it didn't really matter what they did with their bodies. It's just a shell. And I've heard far too many Christians in my life who've talked this way about the physical world, that it doesn't really matter, and so I've heard Christians in my life just abuse creation. They don't steward it well. They're like, it doesn't matter. It's all going to burn someday. I've heard people say that kind of stuff, which is not even true. It's not even biblical. Or people said, hey, I'm, I'm going to get a new body someday, so I'm just going to like engorge myself with all this food and, and just eat whatever I want. It doesn't really matter. I've heard so many believers say that. Like, I can just trash this thing. But that's not at all what we see here, right? I mean, have you ever heard that kind of idea? It's not a Christian idea, but people say that it is in the name of Jesus, See, our culture, much like this one in Corinth, has this notion that it doesn't matter much what we do with our bodies, but we misunderstand what the body is. Do you see what the text says? Just know, I'm not saying this. This isn't a Joshism or something. God is actually saying this. What he's saying to us is this, that he, God, he's actually pro-body. He's pro-body. God cares deeply about your body and what you do with it. He's pro-body. He says the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And I think most often uh, I, and probably many of us, read and we place the emphasis on that first phrase, the body is meant for the Lord, and that's totally true. But just consider the second half of that phrase, the Lord is for the body. The Lord is for your body. He's pro-body. I mean, just think about it. Often, when we read passages like this, what stands out to us is all these things that rub up against us. All these things that we're saying, oh man, I shouldn't do that, or I actually want to do that. I don't know if I want to believe this passage. We always think about what we shouldn't do or can't do, but just look at the affirmation of what God is saying to you in this passage. He's very positive towards something here. We are explicitly told that the human body is a really good thing. It's a really good thing. Do you see this? God cares about what you do with your body. The body matters. In fact, it has eternal implications to it. It says that, that Jesus, the Lord, was raised. And when he was raised from the dead, after he died on the cross, he didn't come back as a spirit. He, come, he came back in a body, in a perfected body. People still recognized him. He, though, in fact, had a new and perfected body. Right, this is important to God. Um, I'm a tosser. And I'm known around my house for tossing things, okay? And so I just see things that I feel like are laying around for too long, and I'm like, no one even cares about this, and so I throw things away. And so it's well known in my house that if something goes missing, my kids or my wife will go, hey, have you seen this? And they're all saying, like, did you throw it away? You know, which has happened probably too often. Uh, My oldest son especially, I often throw things away, and then later I find it on a counter somewhere, And he went, like, dumpster diving, basically, (laughs) and found this thing, okay? See, I see these things. I have a problem, I admit it, okay? But I see these things. What am I doing? My perception is that whatever that thing is, it doesn't matter to me. I don't even think it matters to anybody else. So I just trash it. It doesn't matter, right? But it's important to other people, apparently. And when I discover that, I need to begin to see that thing differently, I need to change the way that I value that thing and treat it. It's not meant to be trashed. Someone values it. See, God cares about your body. And it would do a lot of us really well today if we just took that phrase into our lives. The Lord is for the body. Because some of you hate your bodies. Uh, Maybe it's not the size that you want it to be. Maybe you might have scars or imperfections. It might not be able to do the things that you want it to do, whether athletically or artistically, or maybe you have chronic pain or these debilitating conditions in your life. You you hate your body, but hear the word of God. God is for the body, and you will have it raised one day. He cares about what you do with it. It's not a broken, useless vessel. Therefore, what you do with your body matters to God, because it's meant for the Lord and Lord for the body, and our test our text escalates this thought even higher in verses 15 and 17, and we see that we cannot misunderstand what sex is. That's what these people were doing. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. See, we have greatly misunderstood what sex is, much like these people in Corinth, and Paul is pointing this out. I mean, even last night, I was revisiting the chapter that C.S. Lewis wrote uh, in his famous book, Mere Christianity. He wrote a chapter in that book called Sexual Morality. And he gives us illustration in there. He says that if you and I, we went to this world, if we went to a world and we showed up to some big gathering, and there was a stage much like this and the lights on the stage came up. This room was packed and there was like a cloth over something on the stage and someone just slowly and delicately lift, began to lift up the cloth. And you began to see that underneath this cloth was some wonderfully roasted like cauliflower, okay? Sounds good to me. Maybe that's not your thing, like ba- sizzling bacon, something, just some food that you like, okay? And it was coming up you know, with the cloth and you began to see it and everyone starts salivating They're all locked in. They're even like murmuring to each other and cheering and the the cloth keeps coming higher and higher. And before the whole thing is revealed, the lights go out and everyone's like, oh man, you know, and everyone's just drooling over this thing. He said, you would assume, if you've never been to this society before, you would assume that the, the way these people viewed food, something had gone very wrong. You would think that they're either starved or you would think that they are way overindulged. That they're just gluttons, he says, if, it's, if somebody came to our society, and he's writing this 70 years ago in England. He says, if somebody came to our society, and he uses the same example to refer to like something like a strip tease or something, they said, they saw the way that we view sex. They saw the way that we lock in, we drool over it. You would have to assume two things, one of two things, either that we're starved of it or that we're way overindulged. And he says, it's pretty easy to see that we're not starved of it. We're way overindulged. Something has gone very wrong with the way that we understand sex. It's this whole point. It's a good point. I think it's easy to see that something has gone wrong. In the Corinth society, and we're probably no different, and Paul draws this out. He says, you've misunderstood it. This key biblical idea here, that we are members of Christ. He knows that we aren't just spiritual members, but we are physically members Right, this idea is drawn out in the life of Jesus. We're told when Jesus at the end of time is going to separate people who are his and not his. And when he separates those people, one of the primary ways he's going to separate them and know who are his people and who aren't are the people who did things, generous things, sacrificial things for the outcast, the marginalized, the, the poor, the least of these. He says, whoever did it to one of the least of these did it unto me. It's a very physical thing. We see this again when when Jesus confronts Paul on the road to Damascus. As Paul, who's writing the same letter, is going to persecute Christians before his conversion, Jesus confronts him and he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? He says, why are you persecuting me? Why? Because we are all members of the body of Christ. There's something very physical that goes on in our union with Jesus. See, how we treat others and how we treat ourselves physically matters because our bodies are members of Christ. This is the great truth that Paul reminds them of. He says, do you not know, which is the first of three do you not knows in this section. He brings this up because this church had believers and followers of Jesus in it who were going to the temple in society, and at the temple they would have these feasts, and then after these feasts, they would make prostitutes available for people to sleep with. These people are going, well, who cares about the body? I can do whatever I want, and so they're literally sleeping with prostitutes. They were doing this, and they're thinking it's okay. It's okay. This is why Paul says, if your body is a member of Jesus, the precious son of God, right, why take your body and join it with a prostitute? And just in case people didn't know that he was being rhetorical, he answers it, never. Yeah, never. Why would you do that? Then he gets into the details a bit about what sex actually is because they've misunderstood it. Because they have believed that the body doesn't matter. Just like food is for the stomach, my body is for sex. And just like I can eat whatever sounds good to me at the moment, I can sleep with whoever sounds good to me at the moment because the body doesn't matter. He says, No, you've misunderstood this. Sex is the act of two people coming together as one flesh. He says, If you sleep with a prostitute, you become one body with her. To support this, he grounds his case, not in his ideas. But back in creation, do you see this? In Genesis 2, 24, he grounds it in creation. The two will cleave to each other. They'll become one flesh. Why does he do this? For a few reasons. These are really powerful reasons. He's doing this to show that sex with a prostitute, it's not a casual matter. That instead, you become one with another person through the act of sex. That, That sex is the consummation act of marital union. It's not a casual hobby, it's not a weekend activity, it is a serious act. And this flew in the face of their mantra that said, I'm free to do whatever I want with my body, it's all grace. Right? It's, it's, it's the act of union, That's what he's saying. But this also especially, number two, draws attention to the spiritual marriage, if you're a follower of Jesus, of your marriage to Jesus, of your union to Christ. And Paul presents these like two mutually exclusive alternatives in verses 16 and 17. He says you can either cleave to a prostitute, or you can cleave to Jesus. And Genesis 2:24 is being used by Paul not only to prove the seriousness of sexual union with a prostitute or anyone that's other than your spouse, for that matter, but also to introduce the idea of the believer's nuptial union with Christ. That's what he's saying. He says you're already married. He then uses it to highlight the uniqueness of this sin, which is sexual morality in your English. It's the word pornea in Greek, which is where we get our word pornography. Because every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It sounds weird, right? His point is this. In using Genesis 2.24, it's highlighting the permanence of the act of sexual sin. It's a sin committed not outside of our bodies, but against our own bodies because you've become one flesh with that person. You don't just do something to somebody else. You're doing it to yourself now because you're united to them in, in, as one flesh. That's what co- the consummation act of sex is. That's what marriage is. You're now one. You're not these independent people who just chase your own dreams and try to support each other. You're one person in the eyes of God. So he says, therefore, you're sinning against your own self. It's a unique sin, That's what he's saying. So if we're being honest, our culture, just like Corinth's, has really misunderstood what sex is, and even we, the community of Jesus, has misunderstood what sex is. I think we've gotten a lot of our ideas of what we can and should do with our bodies, first being honest, from the culture, from the crowd, and not from God, yet Paul is saying God invented this whole thing. He invented it. You can put it this way, we have enrolled, I think, in the university of the crowd for a long time. And many of us need to re-enroll in the university of Jesus and be a student under him. See, more than ever, these, there are followers of Jesus, I think, who are naively believing that sex is not really a big deal. But this is trying to prove to you just how big of a deal it is. It is the act of consummation. It is the, the act given by God that signifies that you are married. In Genesis, when God created the first humans and the first marriage, the marriage was created not when they just said their vows, but when they consummated their marriage. This is why sex isn't just a casual thing or a random act. It's an actual union. It's a, it's a serious thing, and it's a beautiful and glorious thing if it's understood and lived out rightly. And so now, our relationship with Jesus is a marital image relationship. We're told that we are now one with Christ, we are united Him spiritually, and now our bodies are for Him. Guys, this is, this is such a huge and grand picture of sex. It's, 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 it's glorious, yet it's serious business because it's for marriage, because the act isn't just a metaphor for union. It's actual union, okay? And I think we see this. I mean, this is why so many people try to have sex with whoever, and then they act like it doesn't really matter to them if that person maybe the next day rejects them or says to them, like, oh, I'm not really looking for a relationship right now. And you might say, like, oh, that's not a big deal, you know? Um, But people confess over and over again, as I even have in my life, uh, that it's, it's much deeper and it's more significant than just some act of pleasure in the moment. It's way more significant than that, and people emotionally feel that. See, God is holding out this vision for what sex is, and people are abusing it and minimizing it, and therefore, they're missing out on all the beauty and glory of it. Uh, Please hear me. Uh, Please hear me very clearly. Uh, Sex is not everything. It's not something, it's not the greatest thing in the world, okay? Uh, Jesus never had sex, and yet he was the most joyful person on the planet, he was a whole person, okay? Which is so important to realize as we lead into this third point. This, this conversation, this um, reality, therefore, of what we should do with our body. If it's not this, then what do we do with it? What's the positive? Because there's a positive here. Positively, what do you do? Well, verse 18 says, Blee, sexual immorality, Pornea. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So positively, what should you do when you encounter sexual temptation, uh, when we are tempted to believe that using our bodies for anything other than what for God has designed them for. We're tempted to believe that it's just a shell, right? It's not a big deal. What are we supposed to do? We're told very clearly here to do, it says flee. I, I don't wanna minimize, that's not a really strong word. Like if you actually fled, we wouldn't go, I don't know, are they fleeing? Like you'd be like, oh, they fled, you know? Like, the word literally means to escape, to run away. It's a very active word, isn't it? This is definitely not a casual word. It's a very active word. It communicates urgent action. It doesn't imply lingering, you know? Like, I don't know, I'll stick around a while. Maybe, Maybe you just won't do anything, you know? Fleeing, it's not just a defensive idea. It's a very offensive word. Jesus is saying to you, play some offense. Like, not just a little defense. Play some offense here. I think a perfect picture of this is found in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. In chapter 39 of Genesis, if you've ever read the story, Joseph, single guy, high up in society, moving his way there, he encounters this lady, Potiphar, and all we know is her name is Potiphar's wife, right? And we are told that she is definitely a pretty attractive person, okay, I'm assuming, okay? Uh, and she comes on to Joseph, and Joseph flees, we know this because it says he even leaves behind his robe, right? So he's streaking somewhere, which communicates both that he really did bolt out of there, and number two that she really did come onto him. Okay, this wasn't like a casual thing; like she really came onto him, and he didn't linger. He didn't blame. He didn't go, well, you know, she really came on hard to me or something. Or he didn't say like, oh, I'll just ask for forgiveness later. No, he ran. He like fled. So why should you flee? It tells you to flee, why should you flee? Because you don't want to get caught? Because giving in will make you miserable and you're like, no, I've done that too many times, I'll just be miserable. Because you want to keep up an image? Right? That, that's not the reasons we're given here for fleeing. We're actually given some amazing reasons. We're told it's because you're supposed to know who you are. And secondly, whose you are. What does it say? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So think about this. Who are you? If you're a follower of Jesus, who are you? Well, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God himself lives in you. Just think about that. You are a temple of God. Just think about all those passages. If you read the Old Testament, just think about all those passages in the Old Testament. How God would, would dwell amongst his people in like the holy of holies and people like couldn't even like get near it. Some people uh, you know, thought they could and they would actually die. God was so present and so holy that people were fearful of his presence Right when w- people like Moses, when they when they you know approach God's presence, he takes his sandals off. When God appears on the mountain of Mount Sinai, people like can't even get near the mountain. Right? His presence has so much gravity to it. And here Paul's saying that same God lives in your body. You are a temple of God. That is who you are. Well, whose are you? It says, you are not your own. Contrary to our beliefs, it's my body, I just do whatever I want with it. It says, if you're a follower of Jesus, it says, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Someone paid for you. Well, what price? Matthew 20, 28 says that Jesus came. Jesus said this, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The word ransom is the idea of paying a debt. Jesus paid a debt to set you free. He ransomed you. He paid the price. What was the price he paid for your freedom from, from your slavery? Right. He did it with his own blood, with divine blood. God purchased your freedom. That's what he did. He didn't purchase your freedom from your slavery to sin and death so that you could just live however you want, right? That would be a terrible idea, Because it was living however we want that got us into our slavery. But he actually delivered us. He ransomed us. He purchased your freedom so that you could experience his good rule and reign in your life. See, you were bought. It's interesting to me that though Jesus did, did this, he didn't just buy workers. That's not what it says. He didn't buy you so you could get to work for him. That's not what it says. He bought dwelling places. You notice that? That's what it says he does. He bought dwelling places for God to live and dwell and glorify himself in. Like, do you see this? This actually, I think this really changes everything. The reason for fleeing sexual morality is not because you might get caught, but because you have been bought. That's what it says. Again, we see this perfectly in the example of Joseph. In, Joseph, uh, or in Genesis 41, Joseph is described as a man who has the Spirit of God. And then back in chapter 39, he gives the motivation for why he didn't want to give in to Potiphar's wife. What did he say? What did he say when he did that? He says, I didn't want to sin against God. That's what he said. In other words, he wanted to glorify God. It wasn't that he didn't want to get caught, it wasn't that he wanted to ruin his present circumstances, it wasn't because she wasn't attractive enough. It wasn't because he was trying to keep up his reputation. It was because he didn't want to sin against God. He wanted to glorify God with his body. See, I think here's the power to live the way God has called you and designed you to live. It's knowing who you are and whose you are. That You and I, guys, we have been bought at a price. The price was the precious blood of Jesus. What kind of response then? If that's our, if that's our story, if that's true for you this morning, if you've placed your faith wholly in Jesus and said, I want to follow you with my life, what's your response to this? What's a logical response? If you've been ransomed, I'll put it this way, I heard this the other day, let's just imagine that uh, you came to my house, I wasn't there, and a bill arrived at my house, okay? A bill arrived at my house while I was gone, and you saw the bill, and you paid it for me. And later I show up at my house and I come to find out that you paid my bill. That's awesome, right? You're a great person, okay? Thank you so much for doing that. Uh, But I have one big question, don't I? What bill was it? Was it my water bill? That's really nice of you, thank you, right? Probably say thanks, hey, we should catch up sometime, you know, that's probably what we do, you know? I'll take you out. All right, was it my student loan bill? Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty big deal. Some of you were like, yeah, that'd be great. Okay. What if it was my mortgage? What if it was my mortgage? Now we're talking, right? That's awesome. If, you, if I found out that you'd paid my mortgage, that would demand a way different response from me, right, than if you paid my water bill, wouldn't it? Right, the same is true with God. If, if there was a debt that you couldn't pay, And it cost Jesus his own life in order to pay that ransom. If he shed his own divine blood to set you free, what kind of response should we have? What kind of response? If I am not my own, if I was bought with the blood of Jesus, what is my response? The response in our passage is what? It's the last few words. It's the title of the sermon, Glorify God. In your body. So, glorify God in your body. You're a temple. That presence that no one could get near. Jesus died so that God Himself could reign and live in you. You were bought. So, glorify God in your body. If you're anything like me, that sounds cool. What does that mean? So be on the screen. What does it mean to glorify God in your body? It simply means this. To use your body in such a way that the world sees that Jesus is more precious to you than all other bodily cravings. That's what it means to glorify God in your body. Is that you now use your body in such a way that the world looks at your life and they go, man, Jesus is the most precious thing in the world to you. That's what it means. That the world sees that Jesus is more precious to you than all your other bodily cravings. It's basically the idea of being dominated by something, to be dominated by the preciousness of Jesus to you. Remember, Paul says, I will not be dominated by anything. Why does he say that? Because he's dominated by Jesus. Being dominated by something is proving what you glorify. There's this huge parallel here to verse 12. Paul is saying, be dominated by the worth and value of Jesus. May he be supremely Precious to you. That's what he says. So I just need to say this. I assume that there are many of you here this morning. You walk in here, and maybe God's even convicting you right now, as I feel like I've been this whole week about this, and you're feeling a lot of guilt and a lot of shame over the way you've used your body. Maybe even last night or this morning, I don't know. And the Holy Spirit's convicting you. I just need you to know, guys, that if that's you, there is fresh grace to be had and experienced in Jesus this morning. He, he perfectly glorified God the Father with his body. And yet he offered up his body to be broken for you on the cross. His body was broken so that you could and would receive extravagant grace this morning, guys. Today is a fresh start. Today is a new day if you have it with Jesus. Jesus is being held out to you this morning just to consider what he's done for you, what he's finished for you. Consider who you are now. And the response is just to treasure him. That's what our response is. See, our bodies matter greatly to God. He's pro-body. He's for the body. Sex is a glorious experience of marital union. It's not a casual activity. And Jesus bought us with his own blood as dwelling places for his spirit. So I just want to ask you, is this how you view your body? Is that what you think of it? Do you use it consciously to display to the world how worthy and precious Jesus is to you? This might not always feel cut and dry. It might not always feel black and white. There might be images you could put in your mind or conversations you could have with people. There might be actions you could take and you're, you're genuinely going, is this okay, you know? I got this boyfriend and girlfriend, can we do this? You know, like you have all these questions, you know? And what's, what's helpful, I want to end with this. I think we see two practic- practical gospel principles in our passage to help us navigate wisely this life, and especially how we use our bodies. So if that's you and you're like, how do I do this? Uh, just look, this would be on the screen. Number one, Paul says, all things are help- lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So we're told to navigate life, and particularly how to do that using these two principles. We're just gonna call them the law of love, and the second one's the law of liberty. So just look at this really quick, the law of love. Paul says do this. Ask these questions. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are beneficial. So just ask yourself, is this helpful? Simple, ask, is this beneficial? Is this thing beneficial? Is it helpful? If it's not, he says, no, I'm not going to do it. See, but in a much bigger picture sort of way, yes, you're asking, will this be beneficial to me? Will it be helpful to me? But when we're asking these questions about being helpful or beneficial, especially when we're talking about the law of love, we're always talking about how this benefits or helps other people. So I should always ask these things, will this benefit other people? Uh, Gordon Fee says about this, he says, this is changing a lot of things for to be a Christian person and to follow Jesus, this isn't saying anymore, do I have the right to do this? He says, no longer do we say that, we go, is this a benefit to other people if I do this? He says, ask this question. Ask if it's meaningful and helpful to those around me, and especially my own self. But number two, he says there's this law of liberty. He says all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So just simply ask yourself this question Will this make me free? or will this keep me free? If it won't, it's, it's, even though it might be lawful, it's probably not good for me. See, to be free from something doesn't necessarily mean that you never use it, but the question being asked here by Paul is this, by using this thing, will it enslave me or will I still be free? Will it become my master or will it be my servant? Will it be my master or my servant? He says, if it will become your master, run. If it'll be your servant, use it wisely. See, we will do a better job of glorifying God in our bodies if we just consider these sorts of things. This is what it would look like. This is what it would mean. Guys, God has graciously done so much for us to bring us home and then guide us into a true life of wholeness. He gives himself to you this morning as sufficient. He says, I am enough. That's what he says. Let me just say, I I felt like I needed to say this, uh, this week. And if we're sitting here this morning, we're thinking about this, and we're going, yeah, I like Jesus, and I want him to save me, but I don't really want to ask these questions. Is it helpful? Will it keep me free? I don't really care. I kind of just want to, you know, I want him to save me, but I really, deep down, if I'm being honest, I just want to do whatever I want with my body. I just want to ask you this morning, do you really believe the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Do you really want Jesus? Do you really want to glorify God with your body in the totality of your life? Do you believe that you were bought with his precious blood? Do you believe that this morning? I'll read this quote. It'll be on the screen. Uh, this stuck with me for the last two months since I've read it. It's from J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. And he just says this, he says, "'Even if you could enter heaven without holiness, "'what would you do? "'What joy would you feel there? "'What holy man or woman of God "'would you sit down with for fellowship? "'Their pleasures are not your pleasures. "'Their character is not your character. "'What they love, you do not love. "'If you dislike a holy God now, "'why would you want to be with him forever? "'If worship does not capture your attention at present, "'what makes you think it will thrill you "'in some heavenly future?' If ungodliness is your delight here on earth, what will please you in heaven where all is clean and pure? You would not be happy there if you are not holy here. It's my deep hope and prayer today that we would be people who long to glorify God in our bodies. Our bodies matter to God. That we wouldn't just claim Jesus in union with him, yet just feel fine doing whatever we want with our body. When we fail to glorify God in our bodies, though, my prayer is this, that we would realize that we are still bought. That the debt has been paid. That forgiveness is still offered this morning. That grace is still freshly extended to you. And may that motivate us to glorify him. May we not value his grace in a cheap sort of way. Let's all stand together as we respond to God's word, okay? Lord Jesus, this morning uh, we pray that you would do a work in our lives that uh, I know I feel incapable of doing. I can't even change my own heart, God. And I just, I pray, God, that you would you would change us, you'd speak to us, you'd give us a life that more than anything sees our bodies the way that you see them. And God, that we would treasure you, Jesus, above all else. God, that we would be people who uh, would long just even prove with our lives how precious you are to us. God, I know if we really saw you as you were, um, it probably wouldn't be very hard to do. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would display yourself to us today. May you just open our eyes once again to see how extravagant your grace is, uh, how real you are, Jesus, and help us to come more in alignment with you. I pray these things in Christ's name, amen.